episode of Fermented Adventure is brought to you by Fermented Adventure. Dawn, we have a new shirt design. We sure do. Dawn, what's our new shirt design? I have mixed drinks about feelings. Now, I have mixed drinks about feelings. How do people find I have mixed drinks about feelings? They go on our website at fermentedadventure.com. They can click on the apparel tab and it'll take them right to our merchandise. So click on the apparel tab. They'll find our brand new shirt design and they'll find other shirt designs as well. Other shirt designs as well. We have tanks, tees, hoodies, glasses, a bunch of different things. And we can still find tequila or cerveza made me do it as well, right? You can find that there as well. And if you want to be fashionable through the rest of the summer, we also have some podcast shirts for people to wear and enjoy going around and saying, hey, you listen to the Fermented Adventure podcast too? Yes. And don't forget our May Contain Whiskey shirt too. So go to FermentedAdventure.com, click on the apparel tab, buy the merchandise. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. She's Barb McDonald. She's Crystal Barrios. I'm Rich Shane. Dawn Ranieri's here. And this is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. Crystal and Barb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am so excited. We met... Law's Whiskey House at Bar Convent, Brooklyn. And I have to say, for Dawn and I, your booth was one of the ones we spent a tremendous amount of time with. Just tasting through the expressions, hearing more about your distillery. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. What I want to know, what I want to share with the listeners who either are not or are familiar with Law's, how did Law's get started? Absolutely. So we are a local distillery in Denver, Colorado, uh, started in 2011, um, but we did not sell our first drop of whiskey until 2014. So that's kind of a distinction we like to let folks know. We've been distilling for 11 years, um, but been on the market for about eight years. So what was the, um, I guess, what was that uh, distance point from getting everything started and up and running to allowing people to taste your juice and what you were making? Absolutely. So of course, with whiskey, definitely time is a critical ingredient in that process. Uh, So for us, we had to start out making our own whiskey and then of course, aging it. So for a straight product, which is what we make here, a minimum two years in that barrel, uh, took that barrel down after two years of aging, tasted it, and it wasn't quite up to our standards. So we let it age for an additional year. So that kind of is that benchmark three years of aging our own product until we were ready to release our own product. Um, So during that time, we didn't do anything else. I'm sorry. And what I found interesting about what you just said is there are a lot of distilleries that will either A, find and source juice and barrels, or B, they'll come up and start to create clear spirits. That's not within the structure and program and the focus of what Law's Whiskey House does, is it? Not quite. So for us, it's kind of taking a there are no shortcuts approach. Um, And of course, not everybody is set up um, to be able to take that uh, approach to whiskey making, but that was something that we were able to do in the beginning and not sourcing and not uh, having to put out a vodka or anything like that because we are Law's Whiskey House. And so that was always what we knew we wanted to be known for is making really amazing American style whiskeys and bourbons. And so that's always been the focus. Um, So that's kind of where that three years of just making our own product and aging it before we're ready to release it comes from. That's a, an amazing distinction from a lot of 
ways that some distilleries are are, are putting it together. Um, you know, my curiosity is, you know, is it the backing? Is it just that, hey, we have enough runway to do this? The philosophy of laws that that was able to happen? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we were in this lucky position where we were able to pay the bills, but also wait it out and learn the process and pay homage to learn and really make this a fabric of American whiskey have its footprint in Colorado. So we had this opportunity, um, our owner and founder, Al Laws and Marianne Laws, um, were able to do this and create this from the ground up. And so whiskey was the passion, whiskey was the goal, and since day one, whiskey above all. Um, and that's something every member of the village is still really proud of. It's something that you know when you start here, you can feel it in the air. And those um, initial ground laying three years or barrel laying for three years gave us that backbone and that knowledge to then further it and make it better. And we know at three years, no matter what, our product is up to par. Talk about some of the things you learned either from inception and along those three years or even what you're still learning today about what you're distilling, the grains you're procuring. I know this is a Colorado product through and through, but talk about, you know, just those conversations or some of the things that you learned with, you know, that, that period of time, even before you were putting your whiskey on the market. Yeah. So I, um, I've been a distiller with us for about three years. Um, and so as a person in this production role, I've been able to see what it takes to go from grain to glass and having that opportunity to represent the mother grains of America and this fabric of interwining them in between everything that is American whiskey. Um, and at the same time, paying homage to Kentucky and the roots of where this started, our roots are Colorado. And so we go from the ground up. Uh, we have wonderful relationships with our farmers and the families and those generational farms so that we're able to represent their grains in liquid form. Um, and that's all process related, but it really starts with the terroir and where it's grown. And that's something that Al really instilled in us as distillers and us as a company and how proud we are because we have such a good relationship. Um, as far as production standpoint, every day we're optimizing that process. We have a saying here where the best whiskey we've ever made is what's made today. And our first barrel is our first barrel for a reason, but we're constantly getting better and putting quality over quantity. Talk about the terroir and what makes your whiskey and Law's whiskey and those philosophies unique. Absolutely. So the terroir basically is a word we've heard in the wine world for many, many years, um, but it's super applicable in the whiskey world. And we truly believe that, you know, the United States of America is going to actually have its own whiskey map, just like we know Scotland has with regionalities and different styles of whiskey coming from different parts of the country. And we're already starting to see that. Of course, Kentucky is the birthplace of whiskey and bourbon, um, but there's absolutely a different taste that you're getting coming out of New York, coming out of Colorado, coming out of Washington. You know, everywhere that you're sourcing these grains from and doing your own process and using your own local water, all of those flavor profiles are going to carry through the maturation process and give distinct flavors of those regions. Um, so working with our farmers here in Colorado, getting our water from Boulder, literally everything in these bottles is representing Colorado terroir so that we can truly have a benchmark um, in that you know, United States of America whiskey map that we truly believe we'll start to see forming. As you talk about the whiskey map and you talk about the personality of Law's Whiskey House or as it relates to the map and the geography, what do you think would be the characteristic of your whiskey, of your bourbon, that if somebody were tasting, they can say, yes, that's Colorado or that's that area's whiskey. What do you think that that would be that would stand out? I think for us, it's just the grain forward profile. Um, definitely being a high proof spirit as well, since uh, I think the lowest entry proof we come out with is 95. So we're already kind of kicking it up a notch. I know we're going to try cask strength today together on this podcast, but we're already a, a high proof distillery. So I think um, allowing that spirit to be 
you know, enjoyed the way that you want to. If it does come across a little hot, then you can add water, you can add ice, you can kind of adjust that flavor profile. But I think what really shines through is how grain forward it truly showcases, even at three years in the barrel, four years in the barrel, you still can taste that grain, which sometimes I believe is indicative of like a younger whiskey. But for us, that grain forward carries through. So maybe that as we look at the Colorado or the mountain area, maybe it's going to be that grain forward. And I'm curious, as you were talking about how much it's a different barrel process, right? It's a different way of, you know, you're in a different, the, the elevation is different. Yes, absolutely. So, That's an advantage for sure. Yeah. So talk about how that relates and, and how the, the juice and everything plays in the barrel. Yeah. So being at high altitude, um, we're definitely experiencing, you know, crazy shifts in our barometric pressure on a daily basis. Um, if anyone comes to visit us, it's always an ongoing joke around uh, the Colorado area that it's like you'll get five seasons in a day. So you'll kind of go through all four and then wrap back around. Um, So that weather change, that pressure change um, aids us in our maturation process. Um, It doesn't, you know, make anything go faster, but it certainly does aid us in that process of allowing our barrels to, you know, take what we call a deep barrel breath without us having to manually rotate these barrels um, in order to achieve that. What comes into my head and some curious curiosities, the, the barrel house or the barrel, where you're warehousing your barrels now, is it concrete? Is it with a floor? Is it wood? What does that structure look like? Yeah. So right now our warehouse that has a majority of our barrels is a concrete building. Um, the barrels are stacked six high and they're on racks too deep. Um, and then we keep it temperature controlled, but we never have to do any rotation because of the pressure she's talking about. And uh, if you're comparing it to that Kentucky, like, homeland of the birthplace of this stuff, they're seeing that interaction seasonally, right? You're at sea level, you have the humidity, you have all these other factors working here. It's the complete opposite. We have elevation, it's super dry, and we have those pressures making our barrels, the magic of what happens in a barrel, it beats like a heart. It's got a life. It's happening. The interaction of expansion and contraction as far as the science of the barrel is something that we can pay really close attention to in that warehouse. And we knew at three years, it was enough. It was there and it's only going to get better from there. And we've been able to, in 11 years, we have this track record, all of these recordings of everything from the origins of what we started with to now. Um, And that's huge to have in any form of whiskey or distillery standpoint, right? That science, that data, the background to back up what you're tasting. Uh, I think it's really cool as a distiller, any product I make, it's, it's going to be three years, but I can come over here to the warehouse and taste the history. I can taste who did this and what, and go and look and see every single number it took to get it to that barrel number. Um, it's a fun sort of science nerdy part of the job, but you still get the craft, right? At the end of the day, it's magic. And what we're putting in the glass we could be more proud of the quality. You mentioned in your inception, mm-hmm. after two years, you tasted what you had and you said, this isn't ready yet. Is that part of, hey, this was going to be that learning process to understand that we're going to need to allow this to mature and you learn based on that pressure versus just allowing the um, allowing the environment to change the, the barrel, not the pressure, right? Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, in the early days, Al and Marianne, they didn't have to push it. They had this ability to understand that it was worth the weight. The whiskey at the end of the day was above all. It wasn't worth letting it go before it was ready. Um, and that allotment or that luxury of time, time is essentially our biggest ingredient. And it'll always be our longest ingredient, no matter what. Um, and so having that and recognizing that we as a village now, and as we've grown since the start, have been able to, to build on that, right? It's a, it's a base point. It's the bottom step in the staircase or the ceiling that we're pushing. Um, they laid that foundation. I'm curious in my mind, and I'm always curious, but what's fascinating to me, and you talk about nerding out and stuff like that, 
you know, as you talked about going back to the terroir, the provenance of, of what you're producing, it's going to be interesting because if you start to say this is the map and this is what the characteristic is, if you're putting down grain from Colorado, you're putting down water from Colorado, you're, per, you know, everything is Colorado to where you are. It's almost like if you want to have that stamp of this is where it's coming from, then that's where your juice should be coming from as well. That that brings up an interesting conversation if 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 there are new and upstart distilleries or those that are sourcing. So I think that gives you a leg up to that terroir aspect to say this is Colorado, this is the personality of what you're making. And that was what was always set out from the beginning was to establish ourselves as a you know great American whiskey brand in the fabric of American whiskey, but bring it back to Colorado and truly represent Colorado. And what's amazing is, you know, we hear from folks down in Kentucky, they know who we are. They've tried our spirits like there is a buzz down in Kentucky um, of what's going on up here in Colorado, um, as well as other states, you know, like I mentioned. So I think it's really important that everybody have a chance to sit at this table and weave their own thread in that American fabric of whiskey. When you think about the history of whiskey, you know, we're barely scratching the surface. Like when you think about the history of Scotch whiskey. And so it's like what we're seeing here with American bourbon and American style whiskeys um, is a really amazing opportunity for craft distillers to have a seat at that table. For the both of you, where did your interest, your passion, your desire for whiskey come into play? Absolutely. So I can start with that. So my definite passion for whiskey started back when I was bartending. Um, of course, making whiskey cocktails is always a really fun thing to do as a bartender, um, but also just teaching folks about different Colorado whiskeys. So that was something that I was able to do um, for folks coming through Denver, visiting, um, hearing about all these Colorado distilleries that we have out here. I was able to be, you know, an ambassador for those whiskeys before I even worked for Laws. Um, and then, of course, you know, finding laws in my shelf and then learning to play with that with cocktails. And when people would ask me, well, what's your favorite one up there? You know, that was always the one that I gravitated to. And then, of course, that just led me to come and find a place for myself in the Laws Village. Um, so that was kind of what sparked um, my interest in whiskey was from a bartender's perspective of just learning about the spirit itself. Uh, my story is... I guess a little unique as well. I am born and raised in Kentucky and a really small town nestled on actually the bourbon trail. So the sights, the smells, the sounds of this industry and what it creates and, and the joy it can bring people is something that was second nature to me or felt like home um, or smelt like home or whatever it was. I would smell the, the sour mash if I was, when I was driving to high school um, I went to college in Alabama. I'm a big Roll Tide gal. Okay. So <laughs> my degree is in chemical engineering. Um, it wasn't until I got deep into the degree that I learned distillation separation processes, the science, the nerdiness, the chemistry behind all of this was this entire industry and what it takes to create something. Um, so I fell in love with a different part of this world that I'd always been around. And I moved out here to Colorado um, in 2017. I started in the beer industry, actually. Uh, this is a pretty big state for those microbreweries. So that was a whole other science aspect that I got to learn as a brewer and a QAQC manager. So big emphasis on the lab side as the quality side. Um, and then I found myself a, landing a job as a distiller here at Laws about three years ago. And uh, the product itself, the first time I ever had it, I remember thinking this tastes like home. Um, the facility itself, and the way it looks, the way that things are operated here feel like home, the barrels smell like home. And my job is more than a job. It's a passion. It's something that I have leaned into and I didn't even realize, I guess, how much of an influence of my life uh, came to this point. And laws really um, represents it, in my opinion, the best in the West, without a doubt, but 
for American whiskey and bourbon in particular, um, I couldn't be more proud to say that I make this. What is the town that you grew up in? I'm from Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. So Wild Turkey and Four Roses are there. And do you recall going back what of those brands, what influences you had or what were more of the ones that you gravitated towards at the time? Um, no, I can't say anything in particular. I think, you know, when you live there and you're, you're raised in that area, you don't really recognize how big of a deal it is. I can't remember being younger and being like, oh yeah, we're on the bourbon trail. No, I just like, it was another, it's like driving by a gas station. That sounds silly, but it's, um, a church on every corner or a distillery around the corner. It's not a, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I it doesn't sound crazy because we have the Liberty Bell. We drive past that all the time. And they're like, oh, you know, people right. line up for, for days to get yeah. into it. And we're like, it, it's a bell. It's got a crack in it. What, you know, yeah. what do people do? Yeah. People run up and down the art museum steps and, and they jump around like Rocky. And, yeah. you know, if you live here, you're like, oh, yeah, there are those steps. You know, yeah. I see them. Yeah, I get it. So, it, yeah, it really wasn't um, weird in a sense, but it also was. I grew up with these people, these families, these generations, or my friends' parents worked at these places and we didn't, we didn't, it's just where they worked. What does your parent do? Like, it wasn't something um, that made you different. Now I feel like it's given me a different insight, a perspective, and a greater appreciation for the work that they did. And the foundation that Al and Marianne have done in this company Um, and to be in the industry now, I feel like um, every day I'm going to work, but it feels like I'm going home. That sounds silly as a Laws Whiskey House. It's not a shtick. It's true. Is there any, you know, what does the family think about, you know, you say you grew up in Lawrenceburg and they're like, oh, yeah. you had to go all that way to work in a distillery. We got one right here. You know, we got oh, several certainly. if you want to choose. Yeah. I mean, my, my mama would love for me to come home. She would love for me to be there. Um, and she knew the minute I left home that I wasn't going to come back that easily. Uh, and it was actually my grandmother. I call her Mima. She said, uh, don't look back when you're my age and wish you had. She's never left Lawrenceburg, born and raised, never left the city. And so if Meemaw didn't tell me that that day, I wouldn't have packed my car and left. Well, I'm so glad you did. I think it's, their, <laughs> yeah, it's technically their fault um, that I'm here. And so I'm very grateful for that and grateful for the support, this, this village of what we have given each other. Um, it's very unique. And I think it's something that it, everyone here is as passionate about what you get in your glass as the next Um, and all the hands it takes to get it in that glass in that square bottle that you're going to find on the shelf. I promise you uh, it wasn't wasted. It was all appreciated for sure. We're going to try two expressions, but talk about how many there are total total in, in the line right now. Yeah, absolutely. So anywhere from like 10 to 14 different expressions we'll have on the shelf in the tasting room. Uh, we do have a lot of seasonal releases, and then we have some special finishes. Um, so since we make a straight product, the only way that we can really kind of play around with any flavors is taking that finished product out of that brand new American oak barrel and then finishing it in a different barrel, such as like French oak. Um, so one we have on the shelf right now is our four grain straight bourbon finished in an Armagnac cask. So Armagnac being very similar to cognac, a French style brandy. Um, But what I really like to let folks know is that you really pick up on that creaminess, that um, nuance that the French oak brings to the whiskey itself. You still get that grain forward flavor that's of our four grain, um, but it does kind of have this interesting wine nuance note because it was finished in that second fill barrel. Um, So I think that that's a really interesting way that we are converting folks into the whiskey world, like one glass at a time, um, because you'll be you know, someone will come in and they'll be like, oh, well, I don't really like whiskey. Well, do you drink wine? Oh, well, yes, I like wine. Okay, well, why don't you try this one? Um, And it has just a little bit of that French oak that'll kind of like get them to dip their toe in the whiskey world. And then we're like, okay, now we got you. Now here, try all the rest of them. But 
it's a really great um, conversion whiskey, I like to call it, because there's something available to everyone. And then, of course, to the master whiskey drinkers, they're going to appreciate that subtle nuance that that second fill barrel brings to it. Um, but yeah, our four grain straight bourbon is our flagship product. That's what we're most known for. Um, there's not a whole lot of four grain straight bourbons out there. So there's more popping up every day. But I do love the fact that we were one of the very original ones to come out where you're introducing rye and wheat together, um, which traditionally those two grains don't like to play very well together. Um, but I think that that's something that we've learned over the years how to capture really well so that when you do try this um, four grain straight bourbon, you really do taste all four of the grains. They really do hit your palate in every way, um, which again is that grain forward, that terroir. That's absolutely what we're going for. Rye. Wheat, corn, and barley are yes. the four. Okay. And do 60% you have, corn, there you 20% go. wheat, 10% rye, and 10% malted barley. And and already my mouth is watering. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Talk about some of the other uh, barrel finishes that you mentioned. You can add between, like, for, for you guys are still young. I mean, as long as you've been doing this, this is still young for anyone to walk in and find anywhere between 10 and 14 expressions. There are distilleries and, and even whiskey distilleries that are just happy to be putting out three or four. Yeah. But but you're eclipsing that. I mean, talk about some of those other expressions that people can expect. That's just that's just mind blowing. Yeah. So it kind of all stems from the two flagship products. So it is that four grain straight bourbon. And then we also have our San Luis Valley rye whiskey. And so those are the two that you can find out on the uh, shelves. You can order them from the website very easily. Um, those are going to be at 95 proof and three years in the barrel. So some of the other expressions are different iterations or plays on those two flagships. Um, so the two that we're going to try today are our cask strength version of those. Um, so again, we are already being high proof at 95 proof, and now we're just going to kick it up a notch and like drink some 116 proof whiskey. Um, but the cask strength is really for, you know, that whiskey aficionado that truly wants to taste those barrel notes, truly doesn't want any water added to their product. Don't even come at them with ice in a glass. Um, so that's really what the cask strengths are there for. But what's interesting is even the most novice whiskey drinker can gravitate to those deep barrel notes that are showcased in the cask strength. Um, we also do bottle and bond. So we were the first bonded distillery in the state of Colorado. Um, so for folks maybe not familiar with bonded, it's the strictest regulations that we as distillers have to follow here in America. Um, so we have older iterations of that bonded, of course, the minimum age statement for that being four years, um, but we have released an eight-year um, bonded bourbon, and we have released a seven-year bonded rye to date. So those are the older bonded versions that we have. Um, in addition to that, like I mentioned, specialty finishes. So whatever one we have on the shelf, like currently we have the Armagnac finish. We also do a Solera aged cognac finish, which is pretty cool for a small craft distillery. Um, we actually got the fooder from France. It had cognac in it for many, many years. And so what we'll do is we'll start with that four grain straight bourbon, age it in American oak, move it to an actual cognac cask, um, and then let it age in that cask for about a year. And then from there, we layer it in to that larger cognac fooder um, to where we're creating our own Solera aging process for that, um, which will be a seasonal release. So we did it for the first time this last um, holiday season. And we'll do it again this year for the holiday season. But it's kind of interesting that it's going to taste slightly different from the last one. And it all just kind of plays into layering those barrels um, one over the other into that larger fooder. So right. I think that that's a pretty cool thing to highlight. The more that you describe these, the more I'm starting to plan what I'll be doing in the next couple of months. <laughs> yeah. Camping out in front of your distillery and uh, or the village, as you have described it a few times, just, just to have. I mean, that's just some of the things, these are cutting edge. And I think, talk about, I mean, for, for what the conversations are at Laws right now, you know, the direction, because you're also, you know, kind of leading the way. What direction are you looking to take and put that stamp on the American bourbon or the American whiskey um, world? Yeah, I think it's sort of a a two-part thing. And as far as process-wise, right, we're always wanting to expand or optimize how much we're making and how we're making it. And so as, as our facility grows, we have the ability to produce more and therefore that's more liquid that we can experiment with, perfect, 
to an extent and then test or push it to another limit. We are a craft distillery. We're always going to have, like we've already said, quality over quantity and whiskey above all, but there's never a shortcut. Being small enough still, we're able to push that envelope, get to that ceiling, bust through the glass and source these barrels and find these things in a roundtable discussion, have a meeting. If you're feeling crazy about something or you're interested, we'll always look into it. It's never a hard no straight off the bat. And as a distiller, that keeps me going. My brain is always turning. I want to be pushed. I'm constantly challenged. We'll never be stagnant. Um, and that's something that has been part of the passion since the beginning and the development of a four grain bourbon. It's not an easy process to do. So once again, back to that ground floor up, it's always been instilled in us. And we just get the opportunity now to distill it and make it happen and make it cool or make it different. And sometimes we don't know. We don't know if that wine barrel is going to be really, really great, or is it just exactly. going to be average? But we know what goes into it before we put anything into it is really, really great. So we always have this step up or this extra envelope or this extra ceiling that we can get through. And I think the industry will continue to push that. We've already seen that in other alcohol and like beverage fermented science industries, and they're pushing it, they're pushing it, they're pushing it. The whiskey world itself um, tends to stay stagnant or represent those expressions the same, the same, the same. Um, and at Laws, we always want to be better. That next barrel that's filled can be better. Talk about the barrels, because you mentioned that. Where are you sourcing your barrels from? Yep. So right now we um, get all of our barrels from Independent Stave Company. Um, we source from their forest in Lebanon, Missouri. We do only 53-gallon 50, standard uh, American oak char number three barrels for the bourbon. And then as far as those specialty finishes, uh, we have a wide range of barrels from uh, wine barrels, like a port, a cab, or a sauterne. We have um, a bunch of the Armagnac, the Cognac. We have brandy barrels. Uh, we have all of these different things or these boxes sort of floating around that we just have to wait. Time is the number one thing. Um, and we won't know until we know or we think it's good enough uh, for you to know and for you to try. And that Cognac Solera process has really been that push, that living barrel, that living spirit. It's constantly changing and evolving and it'll never be the same, but it'll always be consistent. Um, and so that's really fun on our standpoint to push our palates and make sure that we're constantly checking ourselves or each other um, as far as the village or the company standpoint. I like this village. I, I can't wait to see this village in person one of these days. That's awesome. Talk about, I so say you talk about the water, you talk about the grain, you talk about the barrels in your experience, in your mindset, what you bring to the table and, and, and what the laws family has brought to the whole start of this process. How are yeasts playing with what you're doing? And uh, you know, where does that fit in with the whole flavor profile? Uh, yeah, so yeast is obviously a big part, right? That's where we're going to make the alcohol. That's how fermentation happens. Um, to start, there were a lot of experiments with different yeast strains, different styles of yeast. Uh, currently, we use a distiller's ale yeast. Um, it's a very like standard, straightforward yeast that we think um, allows us to get those efficiencies achieve those attenuations that we're looking for in fermentation, um, as well as bring out that esterification profile. So those um, fruity notes or a little bit sweeter notes that we're getting in fermentation as well, before we even get to the distillation process. Uh, this yeast works really well. We use dehydrated version of the yeast. So we are pitching new pitches every cook, every fermentation. Um, and we've had pretty consistently, we've used this yeast since I've been here, but we'd still have um, experiment opportunities. Uh, we can do that. That is there. Um, but as far as our standard, it's always the distiller's ale yeast. 
I'm curious, are there plans or have there been discussions about using like something native or something of, of more of a wild yeast within the area to give it even more of that? Hey, this is Colorado and this is our yeast too. Well, we do grain on open air fermentation. So that is a little bit um, particular to our process. So the nature of doing open air fermentation is there absolutely is wild yeast, you know, in the air above the ferments that is also contributing to that terroir, to that process. Um, but of course, going back to the efficiencies, like Barb was saying, we are still pitching that other ale yeast. Um, we can stress that yeast out pretty far and still get an efficient product out of it. Um, so that's why we're still using that one. But of course, doing that open air, there is going to be some wild yeast um, that's contributing to our finished product. <laughs> See, you talk about stuff. This is stuff I geek out on. I mean, I'm, I'm that one that wants to know about mash bills and where you're getting the grain and blah, blah, blah. But I think there are a lot of people there as you get deeper into bourbon, as deeper into whiskey, you know, it's like when you go to a winery, you want to know what grapes go into that bottle, right? And, or if you go to a brewery, I mean, you talked about, look, you go to Colorado. I mean, people think brewing first, I would imagine, you know, and going to breweries and there's so many, you know, so many different styles that that's where they, they go to, you know, what hops are you using? And I think it's important to have a conversation when we're talking whiskey. Now we talked about two expressions that we're going to taste today. Which one should we start with? I think we'll start with where we started, which is the four grain straight bourbon. So that's kind of, that's our flagship. That's what we laid down very first. So that's always a good place to start. Um, I like to start with the bourbon because there's a lot going on in this bottle. So it's really easy to kind of pick out any kind of tasting notes, no matter whether this is, you know, your very first glass of whiskey ever, or this is your millionth glass of whiskey. There's a lot going on with these four grains in this bottle. So it's really easy to dissect. Um, and really a good one to kind of share with people because there's something for everyone in this bottle. Now, the bottle that I have is um, C-21. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have the so, same one as you. Yeah. Oh, good. Wow, yeah, cool. Yeah. And it's 57.8 so uh, alcohol uh, by volume. So yep. we're up there, like you said. Um, I can tell you, I just opened this and the whole room is now filled with this. <laughs> you know, Barb, you talked about, you know, what it smells like back home. And this is, if I'm living around this and this is what it smells like all the time, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why anybody, it's the romance. And, and it's like you said, yeah. we, we, you know, we just go and we didn't really think it's a big deal, but this opened up and this bloom of this wonderful sweetness and grain. And, and I think that's probably in conjunction with the proof that we're drinking today, mm -hmm. but th there's, there's these cherry notes and, even strawberry notes talk about, again, talk about like when, when laws set out to put out this four green, the character and personality that they were looking for, the things that they wanted to draw up the, of the whiskey. Absolutely. So of course, representing those grains was always from the beginning um, and making sure that, you know, when we are going to drink this together here in a moment, we really are catching that rye, catching that wheat, getting the sweetness from the corn, getting the nuttiness from the barley. We really want each of those grains to kind of hit your palate. And it really does kind of like come in waves. Like as you take a sip, you know, one of those grains is going to pop out to you. You know, if you're saying kind of like that strawberry note, that cherry note, well, we could be kind of sensing some of the wheat that's kind of showcasing there. And then the more we get into it, we can kind of pick out some of those other grain notes. Um, and I think that that was what was set out from the beginning was that it never was meant to be one dimensional. This was meant to be very multidimensional um, with all four of those grains being showcased and being um, heard in that mash bill, right? Like most bourbons out there are either going to be a high rye bourbon or they're going to be a weeded bourbon. And in which case those individual flavor grains are kind of the star of the show of that mash bill. Um, like I mentioned before, having rye and wheat play together is not always an easy task, but I think we've accomplished it really, really well in the fact that you can pick out those wheat tasting notes, those wheat nosing notes, and then still have that rye that's there, but it's not overpowering everything else in the glass. Brown sugar, I get on the nose as we're discussing. It, 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 there's like this lingering pause of, of just something that holds there. And I know that's not really a nosing note per se, 
but it's like you nose in and it gets to the back of your nose and it just sits there. You this can is a taste it. Mm-hmm. You can taste it as you smell it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It, it's such a treat and it meanders, as you said. I mean, there's no consistent, this is what it is. This is what you're going to smell. And as air hits this, this is going to open up and change. It's almost like, wow, we could just sit here and just nose it all day, but eventually somebody wants to drink this, right? <laughs> and we do. We spend quite a bit of time, you know, ourselves nosing a whiskey. Um, we teach folks that on the tour as well. You know, we'll tell them like, hang out with your whiskey, you know, like we described, it's a first date, right? You don't go right in right away. You kind of hang out. You say, how you doing? I I don't know. It depends on what first dates you're having these days. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you kind of, you spend a bit of time nosing that whiskey because our olfactories can detect so much more than just our palate alone. So allowing your nose to really kind of lead you in a tasting, which kind of sounds backwards, but, you know, allowing that nose process to happen is only going to make your palate like kind of confirm what you're already kind of knowing by nosing that whiskey. I get Dr. Pepper on the nose now. I mean, this is so much fun. We can sit here (laughs) all day and, and try to find something new. And all right. So what I find interesting, at least again, different, different bourbons, different whiskeys, I love the four grain. I love the grain aspect that's coming out. I don't get barrel first. I don't really get any real oakiness on the nose. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll be where I'll find it on the flavor. I don't get a lot of the baking spices, the vanillas, the um, other aspects of you know a bourbon, which I'm enjoying very much because this stands out and this is unique. Absolutely. And we will get those barrel notes for sure. I would say those are kind of a little bit more of a finishing note for us. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like this is like opening, you know, a bag of oats, a bag of grains. It's just right there on the nose as far as what we're smelling. And then those fruit notes that we're picking up as well. Like it kind of does have that sweetness, but not those caramel vanillas that we would typically say for that sweetness. It really is like those beautiful, fresh strawberries. I definitely am getting that those fresh like Bing cherries, right. That are in season right now. So it's absolutely I'm also getting going back to, I, I wonder Mima, does she make some sweet tea? Cause uh, I am getting I'll such get a sweet started. Tea. All right. <laughs> yes. But, but that was that essence that I was trying to find out that just sits right. in the back of your yeah. nose and just I stops. Think- and that's that sweet tea. As unique as it is, we're still making this with traditional methods. The way that we do this, how every day when a distiller is in on shift, it is tradition. Traditional sour mash bourbon whiskey is being made every day at this facility. And that is something that I smell as far as what Lawrenceburg smells like, what home smells like to me is when I walk in, I smell the ferments before I start my day, all the lights are off in the building. That sense that I'm getting in the glass before it ever touches my palate. It smells like home, like right. tradition, I'm, like something you're used to. When I come out to Laws, I'm going to put my yoga mat down yes. without the yeah. lights on. I want to <laughs> sit there and I just for 10 minutes, I just want to breathe and yes. it just it's be the in the best moment. Namaste of your life. I, I was going to say, yeah, namaste bourbon making. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Namaste right, at the distillery. Let's taste this. Sensory I mean, is, sensory is such an important part of our process. Um, the distillers use all five of their senses, you know, when they're on shift, they have to know what's going on with the equipment. They have to know what's going on in the fermenters, in the cook. So every one of their senses is being utilized in that process. And then we carry that over to the tourism side because we really try to teach folks like all of this is sensory, everything about this, you know, breathing it in, opening your mouth when breathing it in. That's always a huge one for folks when we try to teach them that, especially for high proof stuff. We're like, this is very high proof. Part your lips, breathe in through your entire palate. Um, so you're not just singeing your olfactories, but that's definitely a huge component of the education that we offer is not only just teaching people about our brand and our distillery, it's teaching them the history, everything that Kentucky did as far as the groundwork and everything that we're paying honor to Kentucky in our process, using the same full-size barrels, using sour mash. You know, again, I always try to tell people we're not trying to compete. We're not competing with Kentucky, Mm -hmm. but we certainly are paying homage to the history that Kentucky has with bourbon. The ocean is large for bourbon. Yes. And 
especially in what we talked about, you're putting your own expression on bourbon, your own terroir, your own provenance of this is what we make here in Colorado. And this is our expression and our impartation to the bourbon world. I couldn't wait anymore. Yes. I, I didn't even say cheers. Yeah. Oh, um, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> um, I, I got, so this took me back to Bar Condon and just falling in love with your whiskey and not, it was very unique. And to your point about how rye and wheat and how difficult it is for them to play in the pool together and really not wanting either one A to overpower the other, but B, you know, a, a, you're talking about maybe a three or four year that's in this class. And I know wheat takes a little bit longer to mature. You mentioned, I think we're talking 20% wheat, right? Yes. Yeah. So you got the corn, you got the rye, you got the barley. And I think the wheat, what it does here, it mostly smooths everything out a little bit in terms of it. I think the wheat almost becomes that conductor to where it gets everybody, you know, it's standing there in front of the orchestra and it's saying, all right, you rye, you're going to come in here, you corn, you're going to have the sweetness, you barley, you know, we, we know what your enzymes are going to do, but you're also maybe going to bring some smokiness into this, but you, you get grain in a glass, but you get the sweetness, this fruitiness. And the first thing I got was cashews, peanuts. I mean, there's so much nuttiness to this. Absolutely. I get that a lot often too. Very like an almond, like, you know, peanut brittle note kind of nuttiness to it for sure. And definitely getting like a sweetness, you know, to your point, but not those traditional like vanillas and caramels. They're there, but it's other notes that are bringing a sweetness and a savory. Like I get a little bit of stone fruit, like maybe like an apricot or like, um, you know, like a marmalade of some sorts. Yeah. I think when you focus on the sweetness that's there, I almost get more of a natural sweetness, like a maple or even like a molasses in there. Molasses, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's still some, uh, you know, it's, I still get that sweet tea. Yep. So it's still there. This is. Yeah. So what I've learned in Colorado, they just call it black tea out here. Oh, okay. Um, You'll fix them. But uh, <laughs> I'm still working. Okay. So yeah, Crystal, there's always a presence of tea that you can definitely sense on the. Bus. It is. Yeah. I don't know how you're doing that, but that's wonderful. That's just wonderful. Crystal, you talked about, you know, the cocktails and the program there. Talk about some cocktails that you're making with this uh, and, and that you can help bring out the whole character and, and, and elevating that to another level. Yeah, absolutely. So in the tasting room, we don't have quite a cocktail program yet. Um, it is something on the horizon that we're working towards. Um, we do have cocktails that, you know, are found on our website and that we'll showcase on social media that we all created in-house. Um, which is really cool. And we will share that with folks because of course, not everybody likes to drink this stuff neat. Some people do enjoy whiskey in a cocktail. So we want to provide certain cocktail recipes for folks, but in the tasting room, you can come in today and you can drink whiskey neat or whiskey neat. That's pretty much all we have to offer. So we offer flight boards um, with three half ounce pours. Um, so you can kind of hand pick and choose any of those expressions that are up there that you want to try. Um, we'll put them in a certain order that we think that you should explore them in um, and then kind of let folks really dive into the guided whiskey tasting process. And we have it written on a chalkboard in our tasting room. We teach folks how to do this on a tour. So we're basically teaching you the tools to dissect any whiskey that you're presented with the same way that we as distillers do, um, which I think is really cool because so many people are introduced to whiskey, but they're never introduced and given the tools to actually understand what that whiskey is and what that distiller was trying to achieve when they made that whiskey and put it in that bottle. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts that there's a whiskey out there for everyone. And so I always tell folks, I'm like, hey, if you tried us and you didn't like us, you know, have no fear, like keep trying some other whiskeys. If you don't wanna spend that much buying a bottle, try ordering a pour at a bar and Absolutely, see right? what yeah. you like and then go and purchase that bottle because everything tastes so different. Everybody's mash bill is different. Everybody's process is different. And, you know, whiskey is going to have much different characteristics, again, based on where you're getting it in the country. So I definitely think that as long as we can keep encouraging people to explore whiskey, um, it's such an adventure for folks to go on and find the whiskey that really speaks to them. 
two things that this whiskey is speaking to me. Number one, I just love the way this lingers on the palate. And I don't even think I've had an ounce and I've just had a little bit of a, a pour. It lingers. It's a nice, pleasant. I, I, I almost feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in that I'm in that barrel warehouse kind of experience where it's coming through the nose, but it, it's still lingering in, on my palate. And this does not at cast strength. This does not drink at a 116. It, it, it right? doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, there was the one time when, you know, I, I swallowed almost incorrectly and you didn't, you didn't see me almost, you know, just kind of choke. And, but <laughs> there was that part, but you know, you could sip this. And if you, if you blind tasted me on this, I wouldn't have had it at 116. So there's a lot, again, that probably goes to the grain and the distillation process. That's kind of bringing that down and allowing the flavor to come through rather than the ethanol. Absolutely. And that's the beauty in, I think our cast strength is that if you just look at that number, You'd be like, whoa, hold on. I don't think I'm ready for that yet. But if we don't tell you that and we just pour you cask strength, it's the, like I said, even to the whiskey novice, they're enjoying this. They're finding nuances in the glass. They're not saying like, oh my gosh, this tastes like, you know, burning down my throat, which is what we think, you know, psychologically when we see that high of a number, um, you know, for that alcohol, but it really doesn't burn. It really just allows those grains, allows that barrel to really showcase what it did and what it produced. And then of course, you know, we're not judgy, add a droplet of water, add ice, mix a cocktail up with it. We always tell people drink whiskey, however you want to drink it. That's the right way to enjoy it. But let me teach you how we dissect whiskey, how we understand what's in those bottles and what's presented and give you the tools. So if you really want to nerd out at home, you can. But obviously, if you just want to pour and put it over your ice cube and sit on your front porch, like, go for it. Follow your heart like that. Whiskey. Enjoy it. Yeah. This is the first time, Crystal, I, 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 this has resonated with me from our conversation. And as you're talking about that the experience of your whiskey and how to experience whiskey. I, I got this impression or compare this to art. And what popped into my head was if you're familiar with Thomas Kincaid, he's the painter of light, right? So you can see a painting by Thomas Kincaid and you turn on the light and other things are highlighted. You turn off the light, you get other things highlighted. And nobody has ever said to me that appreciating whiskey is like looking at art because Everybody can have their own opinion about what they see. They have their own styles that they like. And with what this is, your foregrain, at least what we tried and my experience prior, that this is, you. like I said, we spent so much time at your booth because it was ex the whole experience. It was all these different senses that, was, that were coming together. And I think that's what whiskey imparts. This is art. Barb, you're making art, you know, you, yeah. you know, Crystal, you're, you're, you're putting together art, you know, put it on the yep. wall, add a nice yep. cube, put some water in it, do whatever you want to do. If, if, if you want to change it a little bit, you know, hang it upside down. Yep. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's the perfect marriage of science and art and that's craft. And to me, that's what I get the, my passion. That's what I, that's why I keep doing this. That's what keeps my flame going. That's what keeps me as an artist as a scientist, as a craft distiller, still here, still doing it um, because I get to do that. Barb, you're like one soundbite after another. I mean, you're, they, they should go to you the next time they create a t-shirt. It's like, Barb, what should we put on the t-shirt next? Because everything you say is like, well, it's a t-shirt. That's a, that's a poster. Uh, no. Put that on a coffee mug. You don't want my t-shirts. <laughs> no, no. We'll call Mima for those quotes. All right, let's move to this rye. Now talk about the ride and San Luis Valley, right? Yes. Talk about San Luis Valley. We, we missed that whole thing. It's on your bottles. Absolutely. So that is the valley in the southern part of Colorado. If you're looking at a map um, down in Alamosa, Colorado, uh, this is a very unique part of our state where there are a lot of farms um, and it's a very interesting um, soil context that's down there to actually grow grains. So if anybody has ever traveled here to Denver or to Colorado in general, um, there is something called the sand dunes that back up against the San Juan mountains that are down in Alamosa, Colorado. So it's a very crazy phenomenon in the world to have like beach sands backing up against um, these mountain ranges. 
And so that same soil carries over into the valley. So it is very sand-like that kind of brings this interesting like salinity note um, to our whiskey, specifically our rye whiskey. I do like to point out that this is 100% of that grain. So it is just rye that we are tasting. Um, that's important to us because we did want to showcase the individual grains of the four grain straight bourbon. So our rye is one of our flagships that we consider um, to be on the shelf year round, but we also do seasonal releases of our 100% wheat whiskey, our 100% barley whiskey, um, and then our 100%, well, actually it's not quite 100%, 86% corn, 14% malted barley, but our corn expression. Um, so we have each of those four grain individual expressions that folks can try and then have a pour of a four grain and kind of go back and forth and teach themselves, okay, this is what the rye tastes like on its own. Now, can I find the rye in that four grain and pick it out of those four grains? So that's a really awesome educational tool that we only have seasonally sometimes in the tasting room, but it's a really fun experience um, to show people a one-dimensional grain and what that tastes like on its own and then show them the magic of the four grain bourbon and how all those grains play together to create a different flavor profile. That is a tremendous expression, uh, you know, just, just to try to do that, um, a process that I don't think anybody, at least for me, has ever taken me through that. I'm going to start collecting seasonally, right? So that by the, I guess it's almost like, you know, by the time the end of the year comes up, I can do this whole tasting that you're talking about. Yeah. Take the four grain, do all the different, uh, you know, exp, you know, those, those grain bill expressions that are forward and go from there. Now, one of the things that just captivated me too, is this is 130 proof. It is indeed. Yeah, There's nothing on one. the nose that says 130 proof. Yeah. Not now, quite. One of the things I share is, I mean, Pennsylvania, where we're from, I, I would say as much as, you know, this is where rye is. You know, Pennsylvania is the rye whiskey yes. state. Um, we've got Maryland. We've got, you know, those rye producers that escaped the whiskey rebellion and all the taxations. And they kind of meandered down to um, Kentucky and, and, and Virginia and, and the like. But I, I, I think that when we talk about rye, Rye is that regional or that terroir provenance, um, you know, style or um, expression that to smell or taste something that this is a Colorado rye, right? Absolutely, this is from yeah. the San Luis Valley. This is this is the San right. Luis Valley rye. And, and it is going to taste different than like a Maryland style rye for sure, right. or like an upstate New York rye. Absolutely. And so we're very, very proud of our rye. Um, on the back of the bottle, it says, you know, it's an unapologetic rye. It really is. Like this rye is going to like punch you in the face and kiss you on the cheek. Like it really is going to do everything in your palate. Um, and it is very representative of the San Luis Valley and what that flavor profile, that terroir, that soil context is bringing to that rye flavor. Um, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of power of suggestion. Um, but this is a fun story about our rye. So if anybody picks up a spicy note, which we typically get on most ryes, there's always going to be a little bit of a spiciness. On our rye, especially on the finish, this one lingers on your palate and it does have a bit of a spicy note to it. There is a neighboring farm that backs up against the rye field that grows serrano peppers. So in addition to that just regular terroir that we're talking about, we have to take into consideration cross-pollination of neighboring farms down in this valley where so many different things are grown. Um, and I think that that's an interesting flavor note that some people pick up on um, and can't quite pinpoint exactly what that spicy note is. But then when we tell them Serrano pepper, it's like a light bulb goes off and it's like, that's exactly what it was. But that I think is interesting because it just comes from cross-pollination from that neighboring farm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down with a little bit of Serrano pepper and I'm going yeah. to drink yeah. it. Yeah. But, but what Look I got was, I didn't out. know it was the Serrano pepper, but it, it wasn't that clove or cinnamon spice yeah. that kind of gives, it, it lingers as a, a spiciness and it wasn't a black pepper spice that you might get from a rye. To your point, it just, this warm, spicy zing yep. um, that just kind of sits on the palate. There's an earthiness to this. Yes, certainly. It's just so wonderful. And again, 
I like the idea that now you can start to say this is a Colorado ride. You know, this is the San Luis Valley rye. And this is what we're looking to bring to that rye world. Not just, all right, I, I've had an American rye. I know what that tastes like. This is totally unique. Certainly. Yeah. And I think being a hundred percent mash bill of that grain, like Crystal's already said, it's getting represented back to the soil and learning how dry it is there and how high it is there. That grain itself has to work way harder at that elevation with that little moisture. It has to dig deeper into the soil to get to the point it, that it is right now. And so I think something um, to speak for itself, right? It should be unapologetic uh, for what it's been through. There's nice chocolate notes on yes. the flavor profile here. Again, I mean, I understand. Look, you want it neat or you want it neat. You know, this is why you enjoy this. I don't know how you guys just don't, why you'd want to leave work every day, right? <laughs> I'm so glad we found you. I mean, like I said, this has become like one of those, wow, I where did I know? How come I didn't know that you were here, you know, 2014, you know, we're on the East Coast. We don't get to Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And it's a matter of meeting the two of you or talking to you, meeting the folks at the booth at Bar Convent, being introduced. It's like, like you mentioned, as a first date, I'm already thinking about marriage plans. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long term. I want to take you home and meet the folks, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and thank you again for bringing us on the show and allowing us to chat to, you know, like you said, maybe folks who have never heard of us before. Um, you know, Al says it's a marathon, not a sprint. So we will definitely become, you know, distributed more widely, but we have to make sure that we don't compromise any of the quality getting there. So we are distributed, you know, sprinkled across the East coast. Like folks can find us in New York, which is really awesome. You can find us all the way down in Florida and then a few other States sprinkled in between. Um, but it's really, really important for us that the bigger that we grow, the expansions that we do, it's all with intention. And it's all to make sure that we are, you know, being able to produce more, but not taking any shortcuts to compromise what we've already established ourselves as a brand is. So I think that that's really important um, for folks to know about us. So we always get emails like, oh, why aren't you in my state yet? Why aren't you distributed here yet? And it's like, I just tell, hang on, we'll get there. We just can't take any shortcuts along the way to get there. Well, Um, you've got volume in production. You've got to make sure you can satisfy those that are buying now. And can people go online? Is there a way that you can ship from where you are to their state or you just distribute distributing through, you know, just certain areas? So we are distributed in at least 13 different states here in America, um, which is pretty exciting. We're overseas. We are in New Zealand and Australia. So those are the other two countries that you can shout find out to in. the Kiwis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we do have a link on our website. So if you just go to lawswhiskeyhouse.com, you can click order online. It is through a third party distributor partnership that we have. Um, which they are able to ship to, I believe, 31 different states. So you can always double check on the website and make sure that you're in a state that they can ship to. Um, But that's another great way to get our whiskeys. Um, And then I always tell folks, if there's something specific at the distillery and you have someone in Denver, they can always come down and pick it up for you and hang on to it. Um, So that's another way to get some of those distillery exclusives that we have um, for folks. And Denver is such a, a destination for vacations, for traveling. So it's always an open invitation to anyone. If they find themselves in Denver, please come down, take a tour with us. Um, it's all on the website. If you want to make sure you have a spot, you can make a reservation. You can book a private tour that'll have a little bit more of an elevated experience. Um, but we're always happy to, you know, quote unquote, nerd out with anyone who wants to come into the always. distillery. Our tours are very education based. We do the guided whiskey tasting and it's maybe 10 to 15 minutes of that hour long tour. The rest is basically talking about the history of bourbon and whiskey, talking about our history as a company. And then we take you on the production floor and show you our process. So that's really special and something that we're very proud of is the educational component to our tourism aspect. This has been an absolute treat. I could keep you guys for another hour, but I know you've (laughs) got to produce more whiskey and you've got to take care of the production you have. Is there anything, I mean, we've covered a lot today, but is there anything that we haven't talked about on the podcast today? Anything else you want to make sure people know about Law's Whiskey House? 
Um, just follow us on socials, reach out. We're pretty good at keeping, um, you know, all of our fans updated. So you can find us on all main social medias, as well as the website, lawswhiskeyhouse.com. Um, we're typically around. Don't be a stranger. I mean, I'm happy. Thank you for sitting down and wanting to talk whiskey and nerd out and drink high proof whiskey with us. Yeah. I just have to go to the gym after this now. It's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm not sorry about that. That's Hopefully okay. this just gives you a little snippet into how passionate everyone here is about whiskey Same and way. about, you know, the product itself and what we do and just how much we want to share that passion with anybody who comes through our doors. So thank you again for having now, that resonates amazingly. And some of the things, the culture, this has all come out in our discussion today and if if you're not just curious a little bit after listening to this podcast and going out and grabbing some laws, finding where it is, getting it shipped to you, um, I thought of maybe let's create an app so we can start um, having pack mules for whiskey. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I'm going to be in Colorado. Who needs me to bring stuff back? I don't know. Something like go. that. Yep. Uh, because let's face it. I mean, we're on the East Coast. I mean, there's certain things that we like you, you talked about four or five or six different special allocations that I'm sure that goes very quickly to people that are waiting for those to be released near you. But there's so much coming down the pike, so many ideas you talked about, and I can't wait to see those as well. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being a friend of Fermented Adventure. And um, you guys come back anytime. If there's a new thing released, something new you want to talk about, um, Mima's tea, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Whenever Absolutely. you want to nerd out, we're here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.